Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS and co-host of the 35 West podcast. Professional Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina, right. and that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. The northern triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras have long faced challenges from gangs, which have become entrenched criminal networks. In response, governments throughout the region have periodically adopted hardline or mano dura security policies, clamping down on gangs while also abrogating civil and political rights. Most recently, El Salvador has seen one of the most extreme versions of such a policy under President Nayib Bukele, using a state of emergency to curtail constitutional protections, jailing upwards of 60,000 alleged gang members, and serving as a backdrop for his consolidation of power and attacks on civil society and the press. Even more concerning, many other politicians in the region have called for similar hardline counter-crime policies to be adopted. The so-called Plan Bukele appears high in demand as a response to gangs and organized crime. Given human rights abuses recorded under El Salvador's state of emergency and the concerns such policies raise for democracy throughout the hemisphere, there is a pressing need to identify practical alternatives for promoting citizen security which do not engender the growth of authoritarianism or violate human rights. To unpack the history, present-day manifestations, and future directions of hardline security policies and the use of states of emergency, we are joined today by Stephen Dudley, co-director of Insight Crime, a think tank and media outlet dedicated to reporting and analyzing on organized crime and citizen security in the Americas. Stephen has covered these topics extensively for National Public Radio and The Washington Post, among others. He's also the author of the award-winning book, MS-13, the making of America's most notorious gang, and a seasoned expert on the current state of emergency in El Salvador. Thank you for joining us today, Steve. Thanks for having me. As we approach the one-year mark of El Salvador's current state of emergency, it's important to recognize that Mano Dura policies are not new in the region, and in many cases, their origins can be traced back to the United States' own war on crime. Seaman, could you begin by sketching for our listeners what some of the key features of this type of countercrime strategy are? What makes El Salvador stand out as opposed to similar attempts to control gangs and organized crime in the past? What does the state of emergency mean and what does it allow the government to do? There's a lot to unpack there, obviously, Chris. The first is sort of the origins of this. This goes back 40 years plus to the way in which Los Angeles as a city tried to face down gangs. Los Angeles, of course, is the birthplace of many of these gangs that are operational in places like El Salvador. And from the beginning, they sought to, well, at least you know, from the beginning of facing down what was an extreme crisis of violence, crisis of drug trafficking in Los Angeles. They sought to face that down using really militaristic strategies. This included really kind of troops on the streets, so boots on the ground approaches of getting, of, of flooding certain areas. This included also new equipment. So you started seeing the first elements of what is really commonplace now in U.S. policing, which are large trucks that, you know, in some cases almost appear like tanks. You saw them using these particular tactics 
in a way that was much more militaristic, something that you might remember from even the Iraq war or something sort of bursting through buildings, doorways, knocking over fences, that sort of militaristic approach. And the final element of this, which is what you noted in your introduction, which is mass incarceration. All of these different elements became commonplace in the late 1980s in Los Angeles as they faced down, you know, what, what was definitely a crisis, a crisis in some respects spurred by drugs. You know, we'll all remember the, or those of us who are old enough will remember the crack epidemic. And a lot of that was blamed on gangs, rightfully or wrongfully, because in some respects they were responsible, in other respects they were not. But the result was the same the vilification of these gangs, and then subsequently the spread of these tactics throughout the United States. So if it began in Los Angeles, it was then, you know, employed in many other spaces, urban spaces across the United States, and then subsequently spread to other places in Central America, often on the heels of what was really mass deportation of ex-convicts, many of them gang members, to these areas. So you had kind of these things happening in parallel. On the one hand, you had, you know, the rise of gangs, gangs that were increasingly involved in drug trafficking, more violent, maybe more structured, in some cases more sophisticated, sometimes operating in and, in and out of jail cells. And then the response of the state, which was largely militaristic in fashion, that was spread about the United States and then spread to other places in the region, in particular Central America. Now, why Central America is because so many gang members who were incarcerated in the United States during those early periods of the, the crackdowns in the United States, then were released from prison and then subsequently deported back to Central America. You had huge numbers. I mean, we're talking about thousands that are to date still sort of routinely put on airplanes and sent back to these areas. Many of them, you know, want nothing to do with the gangs. So when they land, they'll, you know, either try and come back or they'll, you know, hide or, you know, do whatever they can do to avoid them. Others of them find themselves in a position where they have incredible cachet and power and will begin to rebuild or start to create their own cliques or reconnect with their old gang members, you know, some of whom have also been deported. So you had that process playing out in, you know, places like El Salvador to the point where these gangs that had been born in Los Angeles, like the MS-13, took over those spaces in El Salvador to an incredible degree. You know, El Salvador is about the size of Massachusetts, so it's not a big place and has about 7 million people. But the places that these gangs occupied became, you know, basically all over the country. So both urban spaces and then also increasingly rural spaces were occupied or, or taken over in many respects by gang members. And this is the backdrop to the Manoduda or Bukele style approaches. Not new, very militaristic, um, very much about trying to mass incarcerate your way out of the problem. Now, if we were able to mass incarcerate our way out of the problem, then you would think that the solutions presented all the way back in the late 1980s in Los Angeles would have eliminated the gangs long ago. 
But what we know from history is that the gangs now have a more than four decade lifespan and that mass incarceration doesn't necessarily provide you with, you know, the solution. Thanks, Stephen. I'll ask about militarization a little bit more further in the podcast. But right now, I wanted to dig into what's happening uh, currently in El Salvador, um, where the state of emergency shows few signs of slowing down as Bukele unveils a new mega prison project and expands the size and stature of the forces, of the security forces. Success in keeping homicide rates down has been a key driver of his popularity. But to what extent has the state of emergency eliminated organized crime or gangs, as opposed to causing groups to restructure and adapt? Has it also left vacuums in former gang strongholds? And if so, who's filling those? Finally, what does this mean ahead of the upcoming presidential elections in 2024 in terms of Bukele's increasing popularity? I think we are only just beginning to wrap our hands around what what this means for the criminal groups that are being targeted by this, notably the gangs. We can certainly say with, with some confidence that they've successfully cut off traditional communications lines, traditional perhaps even sort of supply lines, if you will, in and out of jails. Because what you have to remember is that in a place like El Salvador, the gang's leadership is based in prisons. So it's crucial for them to be in contact with the outside world. When you can cut that off, which seems to be happening in El Salvador, you really leave them at a, at a loss. They're, they're not able to coordinate a lot of what they had coordinated prior. So that is probably the, the biggest and most important impact that we, we've seen thus far. What that leads to is a little bit of disarray. Um, not that the gangs are completely vertically integrated and top-down organizations. They're actually pretty horizontal, semi-independent structures that are operating in, in different spaces. But it's a, it's a bit like a divide and conquer sort of thing. Um, and, and they successfully kind of, you know, divided them up into or parceled them up where there is a definitely uh, sort of sense of, you know, I'm going to save myself at this stage or I'm going to save at least the most immediate circle around me. What that means in practice is that they are either taking cover in, in El Salvador or leaving. Uh, we are getting at Inside Crime quite a bit of, of indications that they, you know, that a large number of high, especially high level members have left the country. They'll go to neighboring countries like Honduras or Guatemala or even as far afield as, as Mexico, where you have, you know, uh, particular parts of the MS-13 are evolving in a very rapid fashion. The Salvadoran, you know, response to this has been to to really shower the the president and and his administration with with accolades and and with praise. He is incredibly popular, and this is kind of a setup for elections. There's a lot of spaces where the gangs were operational and had inhibited a lot of everyday activities where they're not operational anymore, at least visibly operational. And people feel liberated to a certain extent. So there is, you know, the the space to go to school across, you know, what were formerly kind of gang gang lines. There is, you know, the the space to go out and, you know, kick the soccer ball around in fields that were 
formally kind of off limits, not not technically off limits, but but informally off limits because of potential violence or being targeted by gang members. There's the space to kind of go about your your everyday business or or have, you know, or sell things on the streets without necessarily the same kind of fear that you had before. And you have to remember about 50% of commerce is informal in a place like El Salvador. So that's huge. That's a huge number of people that are impacted and perhaps won't be targeted as much by gang members. There's, you know, certainly transport, uh, which is one of the first industries that was targeted by gangs. You can move about a little bit easier or perhaps with less stress. And if you are a owner of several buses or a bus company or what they call bus cooperatives there, then maybe you feel a little bit better about your company's business and you don't have to pay out four to five thousand dollars in, you know, in extortion fees per month. You know, those sorts of things are obviously extremely, extremely popular and going forward position the president in a very strong way as the elections loom. Steve, you mentioned on the one hand these benefits, so uh, people's feelings of liberation, they're able to you know, recover community spaces, they're able to travel, businesses don't have to pay out extortion fees, leading to Bukele's popularity and, and, and receiving the, his, these accolades. But on the other hand, the country is, as you said earlier, uh, has been heavily militarized. There are sweeping arrests, 63,000 alleged gang members in prison. There's a suspension of a number of uh, you know, basic constitutional rights. There are threats to the media. So, Stephen, you, you mentioned all these positive benefits, such as you know, people feeling liberated, uh, their ability to recover you know, parks and, and spaces where, you know, they weren't able to go uh, before the, the, the beneficial effects uh, to businesses that don't have to pay out as much money in extortion as they, as they did before. All of this leading to Bukele's uh, high popularity. These are, you know, obviously the positive effects uh, of Plan Bukele. But on the other hand, you, you mentioned the, the heavy militarization, the sweeping arrests with, you know, thousands of, of alleged uh, gang members in jail. The suspension of basic constitutional rights, the weakening or the threatening of the media. What effects are these having on El Salvador's democracy? And, and, and what effects would these have uh, on other countries that might be tempted to copy Bukele's policies, particularly Honduras? This is the big question at this stage. And, and, and maybe, you know, for, for some, it's, it's been framed correctly. And for others, it's it's really a false dichotomy. I mean, do you have a democracy with human rights or do you have security? I'm not sure that's exactly the right question, but that's, that's where we are in this debate. I hope it's not an either or question, but you can see what is in essence the erosion of, of rule of law, even amidst a seeming increase in security. So that's for me, the, the paradox here, you are accepting if you, if you accept, you know, this, this sort of collateral damage of hundreds, if not thousands, probably in the thousands of people who have nothing to do with gangs that are being incarcerated. This sort of parallel track of, you know, vilifying and going after anybody who does not adhere to your narrative 
either from an official standpoint, and that is in the cases of journalists where you have these cases being trumped up or at least held over them as potential cases against them. In some cases, people who are collaborators and investigators for insight crime that are facing down the possibility of being charged as gang members and who had to flee the country. So that's a very real sort of uh, threat that is being posed by this situation. And then things that are not necessarily official, but also have an impact. And those are the armies of followers and trolls and bots that the government has employed to go after anybody who has, you know, said that they are not exactly in line with the government or its narrative. And I think that's an important part of this in that Bukele comes from the public relations sphere. I mean, that's what he did before he was president. He was a public relations specialist. And you can see that this is so much about the narrative to the extent that you often don't know whether the narrative is what is leading policy or policy is what is leading the narrative. They are extremely agile on both fronts. So it is, it's hard to say. And the, the result of this is, is, of course, a kind of troubling picture that emerges of a leader that you could say maybe is taking extreme measures because this is the only avenue that he has. Or you could say is taking extreme measures because this is the avenue that he wants to take over the long term. And the result of this may be his control, absolute control, over all the mechanisms of power for a very long time to come. You know, the guy was elected president, I believe, when he was 37 years old. So we're talking about many years going forward with perhaps a Bukele presidency entrenched in El Salvador. My sense of the whole thing is that his model is Nicaragua's Daniel Ortega. And that is obviously a troubling model. Someone who is not popular at all, <laughs> you know, but who has managed to consolidate his very firm control in ways that are startlingly similar, you know, including, you know, making very important ties with the country's economic elites in Nicaragua, including taking over media outlets in Nicaragua, including taking over all of the rule of law in Nicaragua, police, courts, and judicial system, you know, mechanisms, uh, you know, attorney general's office, etc., in order to make sure that you can maintain control over that country's state apparatus. That's, that's the model that I feel like Bukele is moving towards, but in a much more sophisticated and effective manner that does, you know, keep him very popular. But this is the thing that, that is certainly uh, troubling. I don't necessarily see the neighbors as being able to affect this kind of plan in the same way Bukele has. I haven't seen anything as efficient 
you know, in terms of his ability to, you know, Bukele has an incredible ability to take over and has taken over the necessary operations of the state before he employed this. In Honduras, that is far from occurring at this stage. The president of Honduras does not have the same kind of control over the state that Bukele has. So I would be surprised if there's an ability to implement this kind of plan. But what has to be mentioned is that this would not be the first time Honduras has gone through some sort of mano dura as well, which is, you know, they had a sort of facsimile of this, you know, much, much less intense in the early 2000s. And then they had another one, uh, you know, just about a decade ago as well, where, where they did militarize a good portion of the country. So we've seen this play out, just not in, you know, in the same way or same extreme way as we're seeing play out in El Salvador. You mentioned Nicaragua, and I know there's a macabre joke that certain journalists are telling each other uh, in Central America. It goes something like this. Um, what took Daniel Ortega years to construct President Bukele is constructing in a matter of months. To be clear, governments everywhere have a legitimate interest in protecting their citizens from organized criminal violence. And there, there has to be some sort of middle ground that doesn't enable autocratic leaders to use public safety as an excuse to eliminate constitutional rights with the stroke of a pen. What other strategies should the United States seek to support as a counteroffer to Plan Bukele? For instance, given El Salvador's massive and rising prison population, do you believe that reintegration and rehabilitation efforts are possible? What are some best practices in this space that the United States should encourage? In my experience with researching gangs and approaches to how to deal with gangs, and I'll just speak about gangs rather than widening it out because that's really where this particular discussion is. What I've seen is that gangs are involved in criminal activities, but their main purpose is that they are a social organization. They are about providing a surrogate family of sorts. It is a community. It is a perverse community, a community that reinforces itself often through criminal activities, including extreme acts of violence but a community nonetheless that fills a gap for, for many of these people who are participants in it. And the only way out of a gang is uh, out of the MS-13 in particular, which is, which is what I investigated at length, is through another community. In the case of the MS-13, it's, it's church. Evang to be specific, evangelical churches. That's the same for the 18th Street gang as well. So when I think about means by which this problem gets resolved, I think about how do you create alternative communities and how do you foster support of these alternative communities the United States government, to a certain extent, through agencies like the United States um, Agency of International Development, USAID, has programs that are set up to strengthen these alternative communities. Sometimes, you know, it's about for them, you know, USAID will, you know, build the space in which these people can, you know, have 
sports programs or other types of programs in these gang-ridden areas that provide these alternatives. So there's some approach to this, but this is a very far cry from the purported solution, which is, you know, increase security measures, incarcerate more people, incarcerate more people in a cruel and, you know, ritualistic fashion, which is what we've seen Bukele do. And to an extent where it is very clear that cruelty is part of the point, you know, they advertise how few bathrooms and showers these hundreds and hundreds of prisoners who are being moved into this mega prison have access to. They're advertising that. The cruelty is the point behind this. You know, given the gang's history, of course, you can understand that impetus. But is this the the means by which they think they're going to escape this cycle of violence by instituting a, another form of violence and having these vindictive policies play out through large mega prisons? You know, I, I just, you know, having investigated the gangs for many years and studied their near four decades history, I tend to think that this is really just the next chapter rather than the end of the book. And that's really what's 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 troubling here, especially as other countries begin to think about replicating these very extreme and vindictive policies. Thanks, Stephen. It really it almost seems like they're unconsciously or maybe even consciously making the problem worse through this cruelty that you refer to. Even people like the Colombian president, Gustavo Petro, has, has called some of these prisons concentration camps. So, so we hope that uh, other countries in the region take stock of what's going on and, and look more to the long term rather than trying to have uh, short-term fixes which will backfire. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. We really appreciate your, your insights into this really important topic. And we hope you'll come and join us on another one of our podcasts. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for this week's edition of 35 West. We hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes.